Welcome to Anecdotal Anatomy, the podcast that curiously explores the stories the body holds and tells through conversations, stories, and practices. Our mission is to connect the individual to the collective through our stories, so we may better understand our interdependence and ultimately live a more peaceful coexistence. Is that too much to ask for? Each episode builds from the last and contains kernels of every conversation we've had to date. We cover sciencey things like fascia, anatomy, the nervous system, and other body-based science. We also have a pretty high tolerance for the woo factor, which, let's face it, it is also energy and should not be discarded as if it has no value. We are nature-loving, yoga and meditation teaching podcasters that could, aiming to make the world just a little better than we found it. Our motto is, leave no trash trace, we're only visiting, but leave your heart print with every step. Welcome back to our Anecdotal Anatomy listeners. Uh, we're returning to Yoga 8. I mentioned before that Teresa and I were going to go on a little field trip so that we could bring different dimensions into this conversation because we're moving from the more tangible limbs of our ethics, the yamas and the niyamas, the things we can work with, asana and pranayama, into pratyahara, which is withdrawal of the senses. And we'll get to that in a second. Just wanted to let you know that Teresa and I are offering a virtual experience Everything we've done so far pretty much has been live, so you've had to be local. But now you don't have to be local. You can be anywhere in the world. And I know we've got people out in Costa Rica and the United Arab Emirates, and we've got people in Italy and Australia. If you want to come, great. If the timing works, if not, and you're just in California or Massachusetts or somewhere else or New York State, come. It's going to be February 26th from 11 a.m. until 12.30 p.m., it's called Discover Your Excellence, The Power of Personal Practice. So if you've ever been someone who thought, man, I just need a ritual, a morning ritual, an evening ritual, some kind of daily practice to get my optimal health you know, in, in gear, then this is going to be the thing for you. This is absolutely, we are so excited because Teresa and I have done this work. We have gone through the process of oh, I just wish I had a personal practice to, oh my gosh, it's amazing to have a personal practice. So we know what the pain points are. We know what the struggles are. And we want to share with you the ways that you can transmute all of that into the lovely nectar of a daily practice. So please go to our website, anecdotalanatomy.com backslash D-Y-E, or is it the other way? It's, that okay. is correct. Okay. So anecdotalanatomy.com backslash D-Y-E. D-Y-E is for Discover Your Excellence. And register, sign up. It's free. You've got nothing to lose. It's 90 minutes and you have everything to gain. So hope to see you there. Register today. Tell your friends, come together as a group. Why not? We are growing community and this neighborhood is expanding every day. And all the feedback has been extremely positive and nourishing and affirming. So if that's where you, the space you'd like to be in, please join us. Yes, come to our neighborhood, join the community. We're excited to know that you're out there listening, but we're also excited to see you face-to-face -face through Zoom and get to know you even better. So now we step into the space of building relationships to the next level. 
And before we do that, we're going to withdraw our senses. We're going to step away from attachment to all the desirous cravings of life that sometimes can result in suffering. So anyway, let's talk about our, our field trip. We went to float. Yes, yes float in Yardling. As, what is it? Zero? Zero. Sense zero. Sense zero to float in Yardley. So, wow, what a beautiful, beautiful place that was. Just the whole design. They And the back, they had a salt cave. So after we were able to float, we could just kind of linger in the Zen, sitting in the salt cave and having a cold glass of water and cooling off. But I'm really excited to talk about this, Sherry, because I was surprised at what I discovered while I was floating. We both had expectations that sensory deprivation tank, you know, that's the the old term for it. This is now we're floating and that it has a whole different feeling state of consciousness, like sensory deprivation and let's float. And, you know, the experience that Dennis, who runs the place, provided, it, it was just, it was second to none. It was beautiful. It was this open tub. And we talked about it. We did a live from the back there. And, you know, really the only sense that was disrupted to a degree that felt like it had withdrawn was sight. Because eyes open and eyes closed it was the same experience, at least visually. I don't know exactly what that does to the body if there is something that happens when your eyes are open, different from closed, if you can see. You know, let's let's also be real. Not everyone is born with all of their senses in optimal condition, you know, which in some conditions might heighten other senses. It's not a deficit. It's not, I'm not here to say like one is better than the other, but in the conversation framed in Pratyahara, the withdrawal of the senses, and we'll get to more of what the actual definition is, but the expectation was something other. Now, if you've seen the absolutely fabulous episode with the, with the sensory deprivation tank, you'll know exactly what I mean. I have to say I was both really excited because I've wanted to float for a really long time and a little bit resistant to floating. When Dennis was talking to us about the process, I had this little pang of oh my gosh, I'm going to be in this dark room and I'm not going to be able to see or feel anything. How am I going to react? Am I going to be calm or am, am I going to like freak out? Not that I'm afraid of the dark in any way, but all of these thoughts, like, am I going to come in here and have like this really zen, floaty, having a great time of relaxed floating? Or am I going to start to panic? Like, oh my gosh, I'm in this dark room. What if something happens? Can I get out? My brain, right? My, my brain started to do what brains do. It's like, is this a safe situation? Let's think of all the things that could possibly happen. Are you going to be safe when you go in there, <laughs> Teresa? <laughs> so when I did, yeah, it was completely different than what I expected of sensory deprivation and or float. But it really was delightful. And I think for me personally, I felt like my senses became heightened. Even in the dark room, it's, it reminded me of, you know, going out camping or hiking at night, whether you're going to put that flashlight on to illuminate your path or give, your, give myself time for my eyes to just adjust to a darker night. And when they do, to leave that extra light off. So even with the darkness of the room, I still felt like my eyes, since they were open most of the time, 
were trying and did were successful at adjusting enough to really feel like I could at least see some shadows and see some things. So there was both of the surprise that happened and that it wasn't necessarily the withdrawal that I was expecting. Yeah. And, you know, preceding this experience, the universe has been drawing my attention to books and movies and shows and conversations that are pretty cosmic. Talking about, you know, time not being linear and different timelines of experience and very mind-bendy stuff. And I have a history. I mean, I was a deadhead for most of my life, still am. So I've had different experiences, which I would leave unspoken. And so I was kind of expecting to hallucinate a little bit. I was expecting a trippy experience. I was expecting more to be transported to another world and experience directly some of the other things that I had been drawn to preceding all of this. And so I was a little disappointed that it wasn't until the very end that my my night vision never kicked in. I had my eyes open the entire time. And the only thing that happened was near the end, I saw these like little white wispy trails. Maybe that's as close as I could sort of get to, to a, a hallucinate, an hallucinogenic experience. Not that that's the goal, but it just felt like all of the energies in my life were kind of funneling me into this experience. And so I had a a level of expectation that did bring a little bit of disappointment to me that I didn't get there. That said, I also had another level of excitement because it didn't match my expectation. um, And it allowed me to open up the windows and the doors of my mind to to things that I didn't know, that I didn't expect. And, you know, for me, it was more about the physical piece that these windows that open up to the things that we can't imagine, that we don't expect, that there can, there's a little bit of that disappointment, but then there's also that, that new knowing, that new understanding that there's so much more. That, you know, even my thought of, oh, other worlds and other dimensions and other places that this could take me is also limiting. Because, you know, who knows? I, I don't know. I've been watching this show called Dark. I'm done. I want to say I'm, we're not being paid. We're not. We have no, no sponsorships. Dark is if you like mind bending, time, you know, morphing kind of experiences, watch Dark. It's a very slow pace, though. It's for this young person. It was a very yin pace. If you can tolerate that for three seasons, it is your fucking show. But um, yeah, Pratyahara. Yes. So um, let's 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 come back to the, how the float relates to our conversation today, which is pratyahara, fifth limb of the yoga. Fifth limb. Yeah. Yes. I have to say, I was pleasantly surprised because pratyahara, I always would define it as withdrawal of the senses. But the more I read, the more that I've studied. A couple of things came out. One was the author that I read from Yoga International, Dr. Frawley, one of the resources that I looked at, spoke a lot about discernment of the senses, directing the senses, more being in control of where we place our senses rather than just letting them be wild and with wild abandon, which is fine if you're not in the practice of pratyahara, but to be able to be discerning on what we're allowing our senses to be exposed to. And I found that even though I thought, heck, this is probably the part of my practice that is 
the least developed. I was kind of happy that as I was reading, I was thinking, huh, part of my vocabulary is what are you noticing and why do you notice it, which is a direction of the senses. And it, to be really simple in an example, if I'm driving down Route 95 and there's hundreds of billboards lining the side of the road, I have two thoughts about that. One, which one captures my attention and why? And two, why would we line the busiest highway in this part of Pennsylvania with something to distract everybody from looking at the road? <laughs> so we're redirecting everybody's senses who should be focusing, right? Focusing and discerning what we're going to look at while we're driving with the sense of sight. And I know that I'm distracted by looking to the sides and not focusing and choosing where to direct the sense of sight. So in Pratyahara, I came, I don't know if this is absolutely true, but I was reading some things and was feeling like this sounds like flow state. So one of the, I was reading like you're absorbed in your meditation. Your senses will not be drawn to sound. They will not be drawn to sight. They will not be drawn outside of the world of that meditation, which is the Pratyahara piece. Just real quick, uh, Richard Freeman in his book says Pratyahara literally means to not eat, to not consume. Mm -hmm. So there's this, there's this connection. And when you were talking about the senses being directed, it feels very much like meditation, that the senses could be synonymous with the thoughts. As we work with our thoughts, we're not trying to eradicate our senses. My initial thought of Pratyahara, which I was judgy about, was that it was going to homogenize my experience, that it was going to make everything bland because I was not, I was kind of touched on the hedonist part of myself that enjoys, you know, all of the senses. And we're in these bodies. Like, why have these bodies if we're not going to enjoy all of the world of the senses? Like, that was my thing. And that's not contradictory to what Pratyahara is. It's kind of moving just from the other way. I always operated from the outside in and Pratyahara moves from the inside out. So there's this sense of going back to absorption or if you are eating a delicious meal and you're enjoying it, the Pratyahara piece is I'm not then being distracted by the sounds from the street. My senses are not being drawn elsewhere. They have withdrawn in, in pursuit or in service of whatever it is that my focus is. So that kind of was, was one of the things. <laughs> yeah. Uh, it, you know, Pratyahara kept being, uh, an example that kept being used while I was reading was the inner and outer aspects of yoga. And the author, authors, placed Pratyahara right in the center between our limbs, right? So when we're talking about the eight limbs, Pratyahara sits in the center. We've moved through the yamas and the niyamas, these out the outside expressions of how we step into our practice and then moving on to asana, really body focused in many ways, not to like diminish that it can be a moving meditation and some of the other things, but definitely outside movement. And in my world, of the muscles and the limbs and the fascia. Mm -hmm. So very outwardly expressed, even taking control of the breath to either calm or excite the system based on what we're doing, still pranayama, outward expression. So when I got to studying that this was kind of that bridge between outside and inside, interoceptive and proprioceptive, 
all of these different ways of looking at it, it just started adding maps into my head. And if you're a long-term listener, you like, you know, that I kind of like maps and how they layer on top of each other. And I went right to, and uh, this is me, not something I've read, but the way it processed for me was the heart chakra, the, the bridge between the lower, you know, body sensed chakras and the upper, more ethereal chakras. So the idea of the blending of the inner and outer aspects of yoga with intention is something that I've been sitting with and really has captured my attention. That's awesome. Eddie, while we're still sort of in the beginning stages, I want to read something from Light on Yoga by Iyengar, BKS Iyengar. Uh, This is the fifth stage of yoga, namely Pratyahara, where the senses are brought under control. When this stage is reached, the the sadhaka, which is a word I hadn't learned, I hadn't known before, but that's a person who follows a certain sadhana a daily goal-directed spiritual practice, but that's another. So the aspirant or the, the student goes through a searching of self-examination. And that's what all yoga is anyway. It's all about self-study. That was me inserting in there. Back to Iyengar, to overcome the deadly but attractive. I love his language. Like if you read Light on Yoga, you could die every other page. I mean, the language gets really kind of intense, but he says to overcome the deadly but attractive spell of sensual objects. I mean, that, whoa, he needs, and he uses he, so I'll use he, he needs the insulation of adoration, bhakti, and bhakti is also a type of yoga, devotional yoga, by recalling to his mind the creator who made the objects of his desire. Now, I love this because what, when we are object-oriented and our senses are alive, if we can direct ourselves to the source, to the origin story, to all of the people who got that plate of food on your table, to all of, you know, what is the origin story of that? I think we get a a bigger sense of the world. He also needs the lamp of knowledge of his divine heritage, the lamp of knowledge. Love that language. The mind in truth is for mankind, the cause of bondage and liberation. So we have all of the possibilities within us. Our minds, the way that we interact with the world can both you know, put us in a prison that can put us in bondage or can liberate us. It brings bondage if it is bound to the objects of desire and liberation when it is free from objects. There's bondage when the mind craves, grieves, or is unhappy over something. Craving is a big thing. Craving and avoidance in these practices, working to find the space in between. The mind becomes pure when all desires and fears are annihilated. I love that word too, annihilated. Although I don't respond well to that word because I'm not sure why are we annihilating anything? Let's annihilate them. Both the good and the pleasant present themselves to men and prompt them to action. The yogi prefers the good. This I think is really important. The yogi prefers the good to the pleasant. Others driven by their desires prefer the pleasant to the good and miss the very purpose of life. This is what I was kind of referring to before about operating from the hedonist first and then going in and that this is the, it's saying that's it's the other way around. The yogi feels joy in what he is. He knows how to stop and therefore lives in peace. That with all these practices, we get to direct our thoughts, our senses, our mind, our create, all of the stuff. At first, he prefers that which is bitter as poison, but he perseveres in his practice, knowing well that in the end, it will become as sweet as nectar which I had to write in the, in the margin, Shiva, 
because the deity Shiva, who's the deity of destruction, he actually swallowed the all the poison of the world. He held it in his throat and then he transmuted it into sweet nectar. Like that's the, I mean, if there's going to be a goal of nectar, then let's drink the poison, let's turn drink. it into nectar. I mean, the goal of yoga. And he says, other, and I'll, I'm almost done, others hankering for the union of their senses with the objects of their desires prefer that which at first seems sweet as nectar, but do not know that in the end it will be as bitter as poison. So what they're saying is that this attachment to our senses, to the objects of our desire, may feel good in the moment, that hedonistic feeling of, yeah, pleasure. But then in the end, it's empty. There's nothing there. It, could be, it, it has that, that sense of poison. But when we start from the, the good, that, that sense of just being exactly where we are, and then moving from that space, it ends up the nectar. But interesting stuff. I mean, it's not about eradication or annihilation, but rather, you know, sort of being the director. And, you know, directing our own life. Wow, what a concept, huh? <laughs> being the director of our own life. I didn't know that we actually defined Pratyahara yet. So this might be a good time to give the definition of the word. And ahara means food, which I found really interesting, or anything we take into ourself from the outside world. And that we experience the outside world through all of our senses. We are sensorial beings. We hear, we smell, we taste. And the world comes into our body through those senses. So we can expand on that definition that doesn't necessarily just mean the food that we eat, but the food for our body, mind, and spirit. And then prati is, means against or away from. But really, if you break it all down, my understanding was it is to control the control of the food and the things that we bring into our body to have this level of discernment and, and I don't want to use the word control but it's really a, a control over the external influences and how we interact with them and in the world today this article went went on to talk about just how much our senses can be overloaded with the way that we live our life. So just think about spending a day where you're on and off social media, scrolling through reels, one after another, 30, 30 seconds of information flashing through your eyes, your thoughts, taking it all in at this very fast pace. Can we be, are we able to, or do we even want to, maybe some people don't, control how much of that sensory input we're going to allow to influence us. It, it also made me think of, you know, TV, different shows that we choose to watch. Everybody's got their favorite shows. I do not like horror shows because I feel that they just like do things to the way that my emotions are going to flow, keeping me on the edge of my seat, you know, but more of a you know, comedy. I want to laugh if I'm going to be in front of the television, but I'm not judging if those are what you like. It's just knowing that you're making the choice of bringing different things into your awareness, into the scope of what you see or what you hear. Some days my music needs to be really loud so I can dance around and, you know, 
clean the house and have all this energy. But for the most part, if you come into my home, you're probably going to hear something that doesn't have a lot of screeching guitars and is kind of mellow and soft on my ears because those are the types of sounds that I like to let in that keep me calm and soothed and that I can step into the space of allowing my sense of hearing to be a choice of bringing calm into my space. Yeah, you bring up a really good point. I don't know, like the whole Pratyahara has a piece to all of this, like what we choose to bring in, all of that. I'm a big true crime fan. My father was a forensic psychiatrist. We, he you know, worked a lot with serial killers and you know, he, he was just, but he was a great guy. I mean, really just the nicest person you ever want to meet, but I, it sparked a certain interest. And so I listened to my favorite murder on, on, you know, podcast and, you know, there, I started really getting into all these different, and then of course my feed started showing me things because I started listening. And then I realized the impact over time that it was having in my life, like certain things were happening. And I thought, oh my gosh, am I bringing that into my world because I'm listening to it? Now, I don't necessarily believe in that kind of magic. I don't believe that there's that kind of direct cause and effect, but I do believe of the power of the mind. And I do believe that as we make the choice to bring things in, and I'll say we, because we all make choices to bring different things in, whatever they may be is, is your, your thing, but that we're bringing them in for a reason. There's a certain desire or there's a certain draw, there's a certain lure. And whatever that is, whatever the origin story is of that that thing that's bringing it in, it's its own story. And so that has its own energy and can, without control or without discernment or without command, can be can run willy-nilly. And, and that's where I felt like I had lost control of my ability to contain that energy. And so I thought, let me just not listen anymore. Let me, you know, mitigate that energy by, you know, watching other things. And so now I'm going into dark, mind-bending shit. But I love that. Like that to me, the wormholes, that's the reason for my being here is this cosmic thing. Like I don't even know what it is yet, but um, we're happening. This is it. This is it right here. Yeah, what we bring in and what we don't. Dr. Frawley in the article that will be linked in, in the Yoga International. I'm going to read a bit of it. In yoga, in yogic thought, there are three levels to ahara. So pratyahara is what we're talking about, or food. The first is our physical food. How can we decide what we're bringing in? So a physical food that brings in the five elements necessary to nurture and nourish the body, the earth, water, fire, air, and ether. So we've talked about the elements in, other, in relation to other topics. The second is impressions, which bring us to the subtle substances necessary to nourish the mind, the sensations. So the sensations of sound, touch, sight, taste, and smell that constitute the subtle elements. And then he puts them together, sound with ether, touch with air, sight with fire, taste with water, and smell with the earth. And then the third level of ahara is our associations, the people we hold at the level of our heart who serve to nourish the soul and affect us on all the different layers of our beings, the prime qualities of harmony, distraction, and inertia. So he breaks it into 
the elements, the senses, and the people we choose have as our tribe, as our community, whether they are relations that serve us or relationships that do not serve us. Everything you said could be you know, framed in the chakras, could be framed in the koshas, could be framed in, like you were talking about, these maps or these templates that, that overlie each other, overlay each other. Object, subject, lay, lie. I'm lying down, I'm laying the template down. Okay, so I think it's, it really just also goes to show back to our mission, the individual to the collective. You know, that we, I'm looking at the three books that I used as sources, Heart of Yoga by Desika Char, Light on Yoga by Iyengar, and Mirror of Yoga by my boy Richard Freeman, who I just, I've never met, but I love. Favorite book on yoga, by the way. They all define Pratyahara in the, the same way, but in with very few different words. Like they'll put in one is food, the other is nourishment, you know, um, mm. withdrawal, direction, or, you know, whatever that is. But they're all pretty much saying the same thing. I mean, Desika Char, the fifth limb of yoga Pratyahara has to do with our senses. And you just went through all the senses. The word ahara means nourishment. Pratyahara translates to withdraw oneself from that which nourishes the senses. Now, if I were to read that out of context, like, why the fuck would I want to take something out that is nourishing, that is actually nourishing my senses? Because that nourishment, maybe if I were to read more, would create a tether, something that is attaching me to it, which the attachment is the thing that might cause the suffering, not the experience itself. Then he says, what does this mean? It means that our senses stop living off of the things that stimulate. The senses no longer depend on these stimulants and are not fed by them anymore. So the senses as they are, are enough. They don't need to be overly stimulated, as Teresa was suggesting before, through the different things we bring in. Our eyes are drawn to a beautiful sunset as bees are drawn to honey. I've, I have to tell you, I've read so many different things where they use bees as the metaphor. So interesting. Not in the same way, though. This is the way our senses function normally. But there's also the possibility that the most beautiful sunset on Earth will not attract our attention, will not engage our senses. Because we are deeply immersed in something else. This is what I was trying to like talk about before, that when we're really immersed and we're focused on something, that the withdrawal isn't the thing we're focused on. It's all the other things that are not drawing us away from it. So normally the senses say to the mind, look at this, feel this, touch that. The senses register an object and the mind is drawn to it at once. In Pratyahara, we sever this link between mind and senses and the senses withdraw. Each sense perception has a particular quality to which it relates. And then you are this, and I'll be curious to if this overlays the template that you just said. So each sense has a particular quality. The eyes relate to the form of something, the ears to the sound, the vibration it makes. This is also, you know, Vishuddha, the whole communication center, the nose to its smell. In Pratyahara, it is that things are spread out with all of their attractions before our senses, but they are ignored. The senses remain unmoved and uninfluenced. So I read some of this shit and I'm like, I don't want that. Like, that's not, that's, that doesn't sound good to me. That does, doesn't sound pleasant to me. It may sound good. And then it goes into this. I don't want to read. You guys can read The Heart of Yoga, page 108. <laughs> oh, <laughs> a very great, yeah, very special number in yoga. But this is where I wrote in the margin flow state because it started saying, I'm so absorbed in the content of the discussion that my senses no longer react to, to other stimuli. Like that's sort of the message. I'm not going to read anymore. But I find that really interesting because it is, in a sense, withdrawal of the senses, but it's not annihilation. 
they're not, we're not completely getting rid of them. So it just, it's an interesting thing. Just back to like, I read something the other day and I wish I had it in front of me because I don't remember the nuance of it, but it was the difference between control and command. Control is mm. an illusion. Like we don't have control really over anything, but if we can command our space, if we can command our own experience, then, I mean, I, that's me making it up after having read that headline because I don't really remember what it said, but I was so taken by it because it clearly resonated with something deep. Yeah. And I agree. You know, how do we really control? Maybe for me, I think a word that I would like to place in there is to have awareness and then make choices of how we'll work with our senses. I, you know, I learned that there are four main forms of pratyahara. And so they, the words that I read were control of, but what if I just softened it a little bit because I softened it for myself and having an awareness of the senses, an awareness of what actions we choose to make based on the information that we bring into our bodies and into our thoughts and the different experiences that we have. Awareness and maybe control over prana, breath, you know, choosing different practices. We may not have control over the outcome of those practices, but we know that, you know, different parts, different practices are designed to help us come to specific states. For instance, slow exhales to relax, you know, breath of fire to energize. So not necessarily a control, but an awareness and a choice to use a different type of breath. And then the mind. So we keep coming back to the koshas over and over and over again. And that is kind of what I really took away from the study of Pratyahara is that it touches on all of the different limbs of yoga. It, again, coming back to that holistic view, I'm sure they all do. There's no way of separating, you know, my- Like all the systems. Yeah, different systems of my body. But when we think of wanting to deepen our awareness of our senses, to deepen the awareness of the actions we choose to take, so that is being in control of the way we show up in the world, the way that we act in any given situation, choosing breaths that breath patterns, and you know what goes on in our mind. Now, this comes back to so many different things, uh, how we work with the mind. In my experience working with people, when I do ethics classes, yoga classes, and I ask the question, what does your self-talk sound like? Some people are like, oh my gosh, you know, I'm always saying like, why did you do that? You can be better at this, right? We can control the way that we have conversations about ourselves with ourselves, whether we're but lifting I think that our... takes practice too, you know, because it's, I, because, right, because I mean, we, the practice may allow us to have a better sense of how to manage our self-talk. But if we have deeply rooted trauma or something in our, our bodies that are like, I've, I've always been told I'm not good or not good enough, or, you know, you'll never make it that, that I I've had limited beliefs in my life that have taken me a long, long time to be able to overcome in a sense of even understanding that I was talking to myself like that. Like you said, the awareness is important because we need to have that first before anything. But I, it's like, if someone tells me to relax, I want to say, fuck you and the horse you fucking rode in on. 
Like it's it, as teachers, sometimes I'm like, okay, come in, take a breath. I, I don't say that. any. I would not say that to someone because the, I, the two things, please don't ever do, not you, but anyone don't shush me and don't tell me to relax because for some reason, like I need to be able to get there on my own and I need to be able to kind of, you know, recognize I'm having that self-experience, that trigger, that thing. But I've had teachers who've told me, okay, now don't talk to yourself like that. Like talk to yourself the way you would talk to your best friend. You know, but I'm like, okay, but that's not my instinct. My impulse is to talk to myself in this mean, bad, ugly way, which now I'm recognizing and I can work with it. But it's like we get to Pratyahara, which is the first of the contemplative limbs. You know, we've gone from the tangible that we've worked with, and now this becomes a little more intangible. So working with it is also a little bit intangible. And this feeling of working with where you are, even if it's discursive self-talk that invited in rather than avoiding it. So saying, okay, I had read something the other day about like, do some movement first, acknowledge the, the, the discursive thought, and then invite it in and say, thank you for being here. Thank you for, for presencing me or, or showing me or revealing to me that you are here. I'm not trying to push you away. Like you're here now. And then over time with the practices, with then maybe we get to sort of peel some of that away. Um, but then that also goes to outcomes that, and as a practice that is about being present with what is and self-discovery, I think all of that juice is is important for the progression or the the transmutation, the transformation. All of that we need that that us, you know. Yeah. I don't know. I just I just had written down for another conversation I'm going to be having this idea of spiritual bypassing, and I don't think that's what you were referring to at all. But as I was talking, that kind of came up again, that there were times in my life before yoga, before the formal practice, where I was spiritual bypassing left and right. Everything was a serenity now. Everything was beautiful and peace and love was peace and love. Now I'm peace and love with a little bit of fuck you. And I need that little bit of fuck you in there because it keeps me authentic. It keeps me grounded. It keeps me humble. It keeps me remembering. But it, like with Pratyahara and this idea of, of control, command, whatever it is, I can kind of limit it. I don't need it to take over anymore. And I can now better recognize when I default to that because it doesn't go away, but I have to sort of look, I, I get to laugh at it now and say like, no, that was a shitty situation. And I get to, to feel shit. I said a shitty thing and I have to, and I get to feel shitty about it until I don't feel shitty about it anymore. Hmm. Yeah, so I guess that's why we went and, or I went and transitioned from control to awareness. That in, in order to do any of the things that you were referring to as far as that self-talk, there wasn't anything that I was suggesting that was to change it. Like, you have to do this. But the practice is to gain the awareness in these four different stages and that is the practice to deepen that awareness yeah. now in the scenario that you said where there might be some deep-rooted things that awareness might just be what someone needs to say i need to go find more advanced help i need to you know look outside myself and find somebody who can counsel me or you know a therapist that i can talk to or how am i going to process this but the awareness of these four parts of Pratyahara give us another map, a guide into some of the things that we want to look at, to have a lens on in whatever order. It might begin with just basic senses. Wow, look, it's cold outside today. 
And, you know, and as the practice becomes more uh, a part of our everyday life, then we can step into some of those things that might be more deep rooted, but it's baby steps in all of the practices and without understanding what it is we're looking at and what the practice is, it's really hard to then put it into our lifestyle of yoga. And we talk a lot about that, what we do on the mat and how yoga fits into our lifestyle. Exactly why we're doing DYEs, right? What does your personal practice look like? And what parts of the eight limbs or things that don't even fall into the eight limbs become part of your personal practice? And awareness is uh, yoga's awareness. Awareness is yoga. Red Larkin Yoga. This is where I'm reading this. You say many lecturers and spiritual leaders have compared this withdrawal of the senses to a turtle in a shell. Mm -hmm. In this analogy, the head of the turtle represents the senses and the shell represents the mind. By withdrawing from the senses, the mind is able to take over and focus on moving the attention to our inner world rather than what is happening in our outer world, like our own little shell or safe space. Now, as a cancer, I'm a crab, so I, I have that I feel that sort of, you know, but I'm also walking a little sideways here and there. Basically, Brett, I don't know if Brett is male or female. Um, they say, basically, Pratyahara is an essential precursor to any meditation practice. And it does. It comes before, you know, our focus. It comes before meditation. It's a practice that is extremely important when progressing to focus, meditation, and the ultimate goal of samadhi, union with divine. It's the bridge between the first four limbs of yoga and the last essential three, like you said before. So what I wanted to do a little bit was talk about ways we can practice pratyahara in, in a tangible way in the modern world. And from this same article, they talk about shavasana. If you're from in your yoga practice, if you're lying on your mat, consider it as an observation exercise of sorts, close your eyes, shavasana. But she also has, they also have some bullet points, other quick fire ways to practice pratyahara. And this will also be in the show notes. Observe silence. This can either be at a retreat or at home for a day or for a set period of time every day. Practice mindfulness. Adopt a regular practice of observing the body and the senses. Refrain from participating in idle gossip or any negative remarks. Now, this is a really hard one. You know, there's something called the three gates that they say, you know, don't say anything. Is it, is it true? Is it, is it kind? Is it true? Is it necessary? Like those are the three gates to kind of move through, to refrain, bring awareness to how you participate in the outer world. And the other thing that they say is practice periods of celibacy or fasting as a way to challenge your sensory needs. So I didn't mean to laugh at, at celibacy. <laughs> um, and the word itself makes me giggle. <laughs> but so any kind of fasting, any kind of, you know, whether it's, you know, fasting from food or fasting from exercise or fasting from the things that, you know, you do that you worship on a date. Like, what do you worship? Do you worship your phone? Fast from that for a day. Fast from social mm -hmm. media. Are you somebody who watches TV all the time? Me, 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 me. Fast from that. for. Are you a pothead? Fast from that. Do you drink a lot? Fast from that. No one is saying you have to give it up forever. But, you know, experience what it's like to withdraw from that in a deliberate way. Some of the other ways that you might want to practice pratyahara would be visualization. Uh, remember how expansive, maybe I shouldn't say remember, 
When I was young, my imagination was expansive. I was always visualizing things that I wanted, places that I thought we would go. My siblings and I would get in, we had a big station wagon, we would get in the car and somebody would be behind the wheel. Don't worry, there were no keys and we weren't going anywhere. But one of my siblings would sit behind the wheel and say like, where do you want to go? And then we would talk about the places we wanted to go, whether it was the beach or the mountains and fill in the setting. So this practice of visualization is another way of, you know, enhancing the imagination and clearing the mental field from external impressions. Can we bring them back in to the mind and have this foundation? So Maybe a guided meditation might be a good way to harness the senses and direct them into a specific way. I also read about something, and I'd never heard of this, so I'm going to read it because I don't think I can speak about it because I've never heard of it, but it was called Laya Yoga, L-A-Y-A Yoga, is the yoga of the inner sound and light current in which we focus on subtle senses to withdraw from the gross senses. This withdrawal into the inner sound and light is a means of transforming the mind and is another form of pratyahara. So really coming in, like being so engrossed and so focused on coming into what's going on inside our body. And how does that take us from the external experience? In body work, I would call that interoception. Can I take my mind and focus and hear my heartbeat and just let that be the sound versus those external sounds? Is that the same as withdrawing from the senses? I don't know, but it takes the outside world out and brings me inside to notice things like that. Or the thing that I noticed in the float tank was that I could hear my breath so much louder when I was floating in the water that it did become a source of what I was focusing my attention on. So it was still the sense of sound, but when I noticed how loud my breath was with my ears down in the water, I paid attention to it for a long time. So a direction of a specific sense. I, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to take that as a win for practicing Pradyahara. <laughs> We all, they also talk about the power of like prana, you know, really prepare. The prana is the preparation for pratyahara was what I read in this article from Yoga International. Prana is gathered in pranayama and withdrawn in pratyahara, which I found fascinating that they kept linking in this article prana and pratyahara to be so, so connected that when we look at our energetic self and um, the prana that flows through our body, I just interpreted that and it is my interpretation of bringing my senses from the outside world and focusing on the energetic feelings that I have within myself, bringing that awareness home. Yeah, yeah. Oh, fuck yeah. You know, and what I think is so interesting about all of these different, like whether it's the eight limbs of yoga or the chakras or the koshas or any of these, you know, energetic maps that include the physical, because physical is also energy, that each thing that I have ever studied about this implies that 
they all kind of, the, the lower ones, as you move up, if there is a direction, I mean, sometimes we say in any order, but they're, they are ordered, I think, in some ways with a certain amount of, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? Wisdom. There's a certain wisdom to the order. So if, for example, in chakras, if muladhara, if your grounding is out of balance, then it makes sense that every other chakra on the way up will be a bit askew because you're, you don't have ground. And we have to start with the grounding. Like you wouldn't start building a building by starting at the top. We pour a foundation. So there's a logic and a wisdom to the way that these systems are, are crafted. And so if, as we're moving through them, there's imbalance, we get to look and see how those imbalances impact the balance or imbalance of those that come next. So if, for example, if our pratyahara, if our energy and breath are somehow challenged or out of balance, then being able to withdraw and focus fully on something to the exclusion of all the other senses becomes more challenging because mm. we have other challenges. We have other things that we need to address before we get there. And so I think that while we can dive in anywhere, we're all different. We're all approaching the system, the systems, the experiences from our own lives. And so we have different types of imbalances and different ways that we approach. So if you're nicely grounded, then maybe you're starting at Manipura or you're starting at Pratyahara or you're starting at, you know, wherever you're starting. So it's not a like you must start here or, you know, when you see a map and it says you are here. Well, that you are here sticker is going to be different for each person who is approaching these practices. So this is not to say you, this is where you how you do it. But just to be aware, coming back to awareness of what came before and how that's impacting where you are now. So we're coming back into that holistic thing and how things, uh, why there's a certain order to these practices and maybe the way that they're offered. Because Pratyahara, and obviously we're moving through the eight, so... Uh, next week or when we come back into the eight, who knows where we'll find ourselves next time for our next recording. But I'm going to say that Pratyahara then is the precursor or it's linked to our next limb, which is Dharana, the concentration. And this practice of Pratyahara to be able to be aware of where we place our focus. Are we able to have that single point where you were talking about at the exclusion when we come into meditation? Can we continuously practice where we will put our attention and limit it? Like when I do mindfulness meditation with you, the, you're always helping me to remember and understand to put my focus on my breath. So I'm not withdrawing from all of my senses, but when I go out into the ethers and start wandering around in my brain and in my thoughts, there is that drawback to the single point of focus to consciously focus attention on the thing that I want. And I'm just going to take this into a much bigger picture for myself. I used to pride myself on my very, very strong and ability and skill to multitask. I could switch my hats at work like, you know, like taking a breath, running from one thing to the other. And I was like, good girl, Teresa, look how good you can like switch from one thing to the other and moving forward. But the price of being great at multitasking was lack of focus, that I found that when I had one job to do for a long period of time, 
I would find boredom and think like, I need to get up and go do something else until I really started to recognize that I had trained myself out of being able to have a single point of focus so that I could do 10 things at the same time. I'm cooking and and reading what I'm going to talk about tomorrow and just stumbling through so many different things. My cousin, who was somebody who helped me to recognize that you know, if I have 10 things to accomplish, I can do all 10 at the same time with bits of my attention on each and every one of them. And it's going to take me an hour to get them all done. Or I can focus on one at a time without being distracted and still get them all done in the same time frame. But perhaps since I offered all of my attention to the thing that I was doing at that moment, maybe the end result and not getting tied to results, but maybe the completion of whatever task that was would be done better. And I would get more out of it. I'd get more out of it in, you know, what I learned through the process. I would get more out of it in the satisfaction of knowing I did my best job rather than done as good. Right. <laughs> well, I think as women too, we are hardwired to multitask. Because as gatherers, as mothers, you know, having to watch the children while we're cooking the dinner, while we're cleaning, you know, and I'm going back to old stereotypes, but we are, we've, we're evolving from that. We are still, you know, sort of in that we have to do it. We have to have our peripheral vision activated at all times. The little ones could be running into the fire while the food is burning on the thing, while there's just a lot going on. So, you know, I think this work can be a little challenging for those of us who are <laughs> of that yeah. of that gender because it, it is hardwired in us. Um, and I just want to say this because we are coming up at the end here that I deliberately, if you're not watching, I wore bright red lipstick today deliberately for the withdrawal of the senses, talking about Vishuddha in the throat chakra, mouth area, very stark, bright red lipstick so that I could focus on that to the exclusion of all the other shit. That was not the, the point. But, you know, sometimes when you show up, you take a, have a little fun, you know, do the thing that is opposite of the thing. But just another reminder about our DYE coming up February 26th. Go to our website, anecdotalanatomy.com backslash DYE. Discover your excellence with us. Since Cherry said she's taking us back into old thinking. Be there, be square. <laughs> oh, you know what? My teacher Lippy says that all the time. She is, oh. if you're listening, I don't know, but be there or be square. Yes. So there it is. We have in closing four different types of pratyahara. I don't even know if I'm going to say this right. So maybe you've heard the word, Cherry, because it's my first introduction to this Sanskrit word. Indriya? I-N-D-R-I-Y. Yes. Indriya. Yes. And it is to create the best environment to relax the mind, to build essential awareness to the flow of energy within your body and your breath. Karma, pratyahara, to look at your actions and make them mindfully and by choice, not reaction. And mano, pratyahara, and that is, yes, don't let your mind go off on that tangent unless that's really where you want to be. Can you come into your thoughts, notice, and choose what you're going to focus your thoughts on. Try and stay present. Until, Until next, next time. time.
Thank you, thank you, thank you. Thank you for listening, for rating, reviewing, and subscribing to our channels and all our other stuff. Thank you for inspiring us to have these conversations and to create contemplative live experiences that move our bodies, hearts, and minds to the rhythm of our highest selves. Thank you for showing up. Feel free to send us your stories, questions, and comments to anecdotalanatomy at gmail.com. As always, we thank our amazing editor, Judith George, Keith Kenny for our fun music, and Cindy Fatsis for our photos. Journey with us as we continue down the roads of discovery, taking the detours and meeting the mysteries. You are our why. See you next time.